Some stories stick. If you were to say something about the feeding of the 5,000, most people would look at you blankly or they might go, did your whole party have to be together before they'd seat you and who picked up that tab? Most people wouldn't have any idea what you were talking about. But if you talk about David and Goliath, most people still know that. Oh yeah, the little guy who goes against the big corporation. I totally know what that is about. So most people have heard about the story or at least they've heard of an interpretation of the story. So we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive and find out what the story of David and Goliath is really about. So the story happens at uh, the end of the Judges period where we were last week and at the beginning of the monarchy period. The first king of Israel is a dude named Saul. And so Saul is the king, but they're still having the same problems that they had before with the Philistines. And so the Philistines and the Israelites decide to go to war. And they go to war in this place just uh, west of Jerusalem, uh, not quite all the way down to Tel Aviv called the Valley of Elah. And it's a really picturesque place and it's the perfect place for a war because the valley kind of goes like this. There's two shells on either side and then it goes down to a rather um, narrow riverbed, which is why David could find the stones. And so you've got the Israelites camped up on one shelf on one side, and you've got the Philistines camped up on another shelf, and they've kind of reached a stalemate. And so what they decide to do is instead of the armies fighting each other, they'll kind of have this combat of their champions, where each side picks one person, and those two will go at it, and whoever wins takes the day. So this probably sounds like a good idea until the Israelites see who the Philistines have picked. So Goliath walks out and he is a giant. So there might be some hyperbole in the account, but one way or another, this is a big dude. And he is heavily fortified. I mean, he's got all of the latest warfare equipment that the Philistine army can prepare him. And he is just scary. And so the idea of hand-to-hand -hand combat with him, I mean, that dissipates pretty quickly. And so Goliath comes down pretty much every day for 40 days and shouts, comes to the middle of the valley and shouts at the Israelites and says, isn't, gonna, isn't somebody going to come take me on? Because whoever wins, uh, if you win, we'll serve you. If we win, you serve us. And he does this for 40 days and nobody takes him up on the challenge because he's big and scary and everybody thinks that they're going to lose. Well, after 40 days, um, supplies come in the form of David. Uh, he comes to, from Bethlehem, which is quite a bit of ways, to bring food to his brothers because family supplied the soldiers. And he gets there right about the time that Goliath comes out for his daily taunting of the Israelite armies. And David hears this for the first time. And he can't believe that everybody is cowering and hiding behind bushes and in their tents. He's like, who is this dude? Somebody needs to take him on. And so eventually he talks big enough that they bring him to Saul the king. And David says, I can take this dude. And Saul says, I don't think he can, but if you're determined, go ahead. But let me at least help you out. I'm going to give you my armor. So David's some scrawny teenage dude. And Saul is probably one of the biggest people in Israel. And I just think there's probably this pretty comical moment where Saul puts his helmet on David and it kind of slides down to here and David can't hear anymore. And he puts his armor on him and it literally is dragging on the ground. And he hands David his sword and David is like, 
And eventually he gets all dressed in this and he goes, this is not gonna work. I, I can't wear this stuff. And instead, he goes and he picks up five smooth stones, riverbed after all, they're there. And he says, all I'm gonna need is a couple of rocks that I can put in my sling and heave at this dude. And I know God will be with me and that's what I'm gonna do. So he goes out and Goliath comes out, you know, like a Sherman tank. And he laughs at David. He's like, what is this you're sending out to me? And David lets him laugh for a minute and basically tells him that he comes on behalf of God and takes one of his stones and he swings it around and lets it loose and the thing hits Goliath right in the center of the forehead and he teeters back and forth a little bit and timber falls flat on his face. David goes and he cuts off Goliath's head and presents it to the king and the Israelite army chases the Philistines down the hill and that's the end of the story. So, the easiest takeaway from the story is that God is with the underdog. And sometimes the little guy wins. In fact, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a really good book called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And so that whole underdog thing is even in the title. And there's some great advice in the book and it's really a great read. I'm just not sure if the Bible is talking about how sometimes underdogs win against all odds. I don't know if the real story is about David and Goliath as much as I think the story is about David and Saul. It's not so much about how the little guy beating the big guy against the odds as it is about how important personal character is and how important it is to rely on God in our lives. But look at the timing. So we're in 1 Samuel 17, chapter 17. Just a couple of chapters back, in chapter 13, God rejects Saul as king. He removes his blessing from him because of a dumb thing that Saul did. And then in chapter 16, just right before the story that I just told you about, without Saul's knowledge, David has been anointed king. And so you've got two different kings, one that God has removed his blessing from, another that God has blessed, and then we get to chapter 17. And I think chapter 17 is to demonstrate why God rejected Saul and why he chose David. I think it's a study of what God is looking for from people who follow him. And this is where the story really comes to a head in verse eight. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Brief excursus, 40 is usually a symbolic number in the Bible. Oftentimes, it's associated with trials or temptations. So that's just a flag for people to know that this thing has been going on for a long time. It's a, it's a hardship. So these are God's people. These are the covenant people of God. These are people that God has made a promise to. And what's the promise? You will be my people 
and I will be your God. I will make you a great nation, and ultimately, I will use you to help me save the world. So they've got this promise from God about his, how, who he is to them, how he is growing and developing them, and the future that he has from him. And now there's this perceived threat to what God is doing. How do they respond? They're paralyzed with fear. Why? Well, it's scary. But over and over in the Bible, it demonstrates that God keeps his promises, even in really scary situations. That's going to play out in this story. But we also have a promise from God. We have a covenant. We know that God has a good future in store for us. He's recreating and renewing and restoring everything. In Jesus, he's making everything new, putting things back together again. We know that, and we know God's promises are true. And yet, if the wrong person gets elected, we're terrified by that. I already know people who are panicking because of the potential of a recession next spring. You know, every single time an angel shows up in the Bible, what's the first thing they say? Fear not. Now, let's understand that fear not is not the same as go ahead and do something stupid. There are consequences to our actions. But in general, we don't need to fear because God is with us. So here are God's people with a perceived threat, dismayed and terrified and hiding. And where is their leader? He's hiding in his tent. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And this goes on for 40 days. Basically, it seems like the only thing that passes time is Goliath coming out every morning. They're at this stalemate. What kind of leader does that? Well, truth be told, lots of them. But no good leader gets terrified and stays in his tent. Why is Saul hiding in his tent? Is he a coward? I don't know, maybe. But ultimately, it's because Saul knows he's beat. Saul looks at Goliath and knows he's got nothing. He knows there's no way that he can beat Goliath in a man-to-man -man combat situation. And so because he knows he's beat, he completely abandons some of the core functions of a godly leader, which are to define reality and to cast vision. Saul should be the one saying, we're the people of God. I don't know how we can do this, but we can do this because God is with us. But Saul doesn't do that because Saul is missing something huge in this equation. And I think what he's missing is the God factor. And that's the problem. That's also why in chapter 13, Saul was rejected because he didn't wait for God. He didn't figure in the God factor. Saul always seems to think, I have all the resources I need. I don't need God. And we saw how that played out last week in Samson, but the Bible tends to be cyclical because we tend to forget the lessons. So Saul doesn't need God. He's not going to wait for God. He doesn't count on God. He doesn't rely on God. He doesn't figure God in. So there's two styles of leadership that are going to be portrayed in this story. You've got Saul, who only looks at his own resources, and you have David, who looks at God's resources. You've got two types of men. You've got one who relies on his own gifts and talents, 
and one who relies on the power of God in his life. And interestingly, I think, you can't tell what type of a person they are just by looking at them. We might be surprised by the people that God chooses, because I think people were surprised by what God chose there. You can't always judge a book by its cover. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, which is where Saul is called, it says that there was a man named Saul, as handsome as a young man could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. So Saul just looked like a king. He was big, he was handsome, he had it all. And so when Saul is rejected, Samuel the prophet who anoints kings goes about looking for another tall, good-looking guy. And he goes to David's father's house, and David has a bunch of brothers. He's the eighth son. And so Samuel goes to the tallest, best-looking one. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So David's unlikely. He's the eighth son, and he's a shepherd. Apparently not over a huge group of sheep, because even his brother makes fun of the little thing that he's in charge of. He's a teenager. He's not really been proven. There are all sorts of reasons why he's a bad choice to fight Goliath and certainly to be king. But David's heart was in a different place than Saul's was. David was a sincere follower of God. Sammy McCubbins, our director of pastoral care, is reading a book uh, that's based on the lectures of Dallas Willard. And she was telling me about it the other day. And she said, one of the things that Dallas talks about is that there's a difference between being a Christian and being a disciple. Being a Christian is one thing, but what we're shooting for is being a disciple. And that's different. A disciple is someone who is intentionally following God, intentionally conforming their lives to be more like Jesus. As a church, our second organizing principle is not make Christians. Our second organizing principle is to make disciples who make other disciples. So Saul's a nominal follower of God. Oh sure, when push comes to shove, yeah, he believes. But on a practical level, the belief never really works its way out into faith or actions. And that's probably where a lot of people find themselves today. You might be a cultural Christian, and I think that's what we're seeing a lot in politics these days. You might be a church person. You like the feel of the church, you like the community of the church, maybe you like the music, the pastor and his winsome personality. But the real question is, are you continuing to take steps to become a disciple of Jesus? David was a sincere follower of God. He's an Old Testament disciple. And because his heart was in a different place, David brings a fresh perspective to the situation. It's so easy, I think, for all of us to fall into groupthink and to lose creativity, to lose faith, and to lose the ability to see that with God, nothing is impossible. There might be some challenge in front of us, a looming economic recession, whatever, and often we go, oh, that'll sink us. We can't do that thing. We don't have the resources. The challenge is too great. And we begin to talk ourselves into defeat. 
And I think that's what they've done here. There's this huge challenge in front of us. We can't defeat Goliath. None of us is big enough. None of us is strong enough. And so they've talked their way into defeat and they're just sitting there wasting away, paralyzed, doing nothing. And all of a sudden, this kid shows up, this scrappy, skinny teenager, and he says, are you kidding? We serve the living God. He's got this. Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And that question must have been a little bit jolting to them. That perspective must have been a little bit unsettling because he gets two responses for it. First of all, he gets a response from his brothers. His brothers basically say, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. There's no way to do this. If there's no new way to do this, if we acknowledge that there is, it just makes us look bad, so we're just gonna shut you down. And that's what they do. Not that organizations or people ever do that to other people. The other response that he gets is that enough people must think that he has a point that someone finally tells Saul, the king, hey, there's this kid out there who's got some crazy ideas. And more than bringing the new perspective, David sees that he probably can help. So David goes in before Saul, and David says to Saul in verse 32, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Y'all are quaking in your boots, but I'll go get it done. Now, there's a fine line between faith and stupidity. Sometimes we're like, I can do this thing. But there's lots of things you can't do. Like you can't decide today that you're going to run a marathon tomorrow. That just doesn't work. You can't go to Brandon and go, I kn I've noticed that you could really use a bassoon player in the band, and I really feel like if I buy a bassoon player and, and buy a bassoon, that God will give me the ability to do that. I'm thinking that's not going to happen. What does work is that if you've got some background, if you've got some gifts, if you've got some talents, you've got some inclination that God can use, even if it's a stretch, that's probably going to work. So there's this need. There's an intimidating need. And David felt like he might have the gifts to be able to help, even though it was going to be stretched. So what's Saul's response? Verse 33, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his, from his youth. So first of all, he totally discounts David, and he, can't, he tells him all of the reasons why it will never work. And Saul basically says, we're defeated already, and you certainly don't have the tools or the talents to be able to help us. So in other words, he really tries to be an encouragement to David so that he can grow and develop. But David is not dissuaded. In verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine I just love that phrase. It's got to sound worse in Hebrew than it does in English. We'll be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. 
The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistines. So, yeah, it's a daunting task. Yes, David is young. Yes, David doesn't have any experience in warfare. But David is remembering what God did for him in the past. And that helps him face the future. You notice that David doesn't go, ultimately, it was because of my great strength and my great hunting abilities that this happened. David credits God with saving him from the lion and from the bear in the past. And so he believes that the same God who's been with him in those fights will be with him in the fight that is to come. And one of the things that occurred to me is David didn't necessarily count the cost of the action. What he counted was the cost of inaction. He didn't camp on, this is going to be inconvenient for me. I could get hurt. This is not really what my father sent me to do. I'm not really qualified. He, he didn't really stop and count the cost of the action, but he realized what would happen if he didn't do anything. He realized that if someone didn't do something, they would lose. And he realized that he might be that someone. And I think that that's something that we need to think about for a while. If we're not in a war, we're in a contest in the same way. We're in a struggle between good and evil, between light and darkness, between God and Satan and all the forces of evil. And there is no neutral ground. Lives are at stake. People are at stake. Over the last couple years of COVID, the suicide rate has gone through the roof. The number of people that are struggling with depression has gone through the roof. There are people who had full lives who can't bring themselves to go back to the lives that they had before for fear or because they've gotten out of the habit or whatever. There's all these really critical things that are going on and at one level we know it, but at the other level we're like, yeah, something should be done about that. But you know, I've had tickets for this concert for forever, or whatever. You know, I mean, we, we see this need, but we're not motivated by the fact we might be able to help with this thing. What will happen if we forget what God has done in our lives? What will happen if we don't remember how God has worked in the past for us? What if we can only see the problems that we've faced and not how God has used them to form us and develop us? What if we think that the challenging times were not from God and can't be used by God? What if we just look at the future and go, it's too hard? Then we'll end up like the Israelites in the story. We'll end up huddled in our tents, afraid to come out and have absolutely no use to God. So after David shares about his confidence in God, Saul says, go and the Lord be with you. It's kind of like, whatever. If you think you're going to do this, give it a shot. But then, at least Saul tries to be helpful. Verse 38, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. So Saul's like, give it a shot because I don't really have a better plan. And then I also see another failure of leadership here because Saul should have gone with him. And yet Saul just lets him go alone because Saul doesn't have any confidence that anything is going to happen. So we see where Saul's trust is. In this moment, the only trust that Saul can muster up is in his armor. And it just reminds me of Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
And here you have Saul trusting in his battle gear and David is trusting in God instead. So Saul trusts in his armor, although not much, and David trusts in God. And I also just can't get away from the fact that Saul can only see one way to do this. He can't see how God can use something else. It's a battle, you wear armor. That's the way we've always done it before, even though I don't think it's going to work this time. But David realizes that Saul's way isn't going to work for him. Verse 39, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to him, used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. What? Have you seen Goliath? He's armed to the teeth. And you're going to go out there with a couple of rocks? Here's the lesson that I think is right here. If God has called you into a situation, God will equip you with your unique gifts and talents. Or another way to say it is, you can't live someone else's life. You can only live yours. You have unique gifts and talents. You don't have anybody else's gifts and talents. You have yours, and God will use you and your talents. I remember when I was in seminary, I wanted to preach like my preaching professor. He was spellbinding. Oh, how I wanted to be Ian Pitt Watson and have a Scottish burr on top of it. And I wanted to sound like Lloyd John Ogilvy, who was pastor of Hollywood Presbyterian for a long time and then chaplain of the Senate. And he had this deep James Earl Jones type voice. I wanted to sound like Lloyd Ogilvy. And I wanted to preach in the style of John Huffman, who just stood up without any notes or his Bible and just talked to people and was super profound. But I had to realize that I'm not any of those people. I'm me. And God uses me with my gifts in this situation that God has put me in. So if you're in a situation, it's because God put you there, not someone else. And so God expects you to use your gifts, not someone else's gifts. And I think we need to be very careful when we feel like God is nudging us towards something to think that he can't use us because someone else is more gifted or more qualified. I mean, crying out loud, if we waited for the most qualified person to serve around the church, we'd still be waiting. It's all about willingness. It's about people like David who will go, I think I can help with that, and do. So David goes out to meet Goliath with his shepherd stuff. He's got his staff, he's got a couple of stones, he's got his sling. He doesn't go out with Saul's stuff. And maybe Saul stays in his tent because he can't bear to watch the kid get slaughtered. But that's not how David approaches it. David embraces the God factor. Verse 41, Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. So this is where the rubber meets the road, right? This is when it's no longer hypothetical. Here's the obstacle right in front of you, and he wants to kill you. We might not face Goliath, but we face our own challenges. It could be cancer. 
It could be a severe financial setback. It could be serving in a dangerous situation. And how do you respond to that? Well, it really depends on who or what you're trusting, doesn't it? Because after he's taunted, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. And I can only imagine that Goliath laughs out loud. Now David isn't delusional. David recognizes he's got a weapon that Goliath doesn't. He's got God on his side. He knows the battle belongs to the Lord, and God will do this thing. And then it gets really scary. Verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line. I think that's crazy. I'd stand where I was. I'd back up. I'd go, I think I can huck this stone about 250 yards. I don't need to be any closer. David runs towards him. While he's running, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David runs towards Goliath. David is all in. I think lots of times it's easy to go, I'm going to trust God, but I'm also going to hedge my bets. Being all in like that is more than we're comfortable with a lot of times. I want to step out in faith, but I also want to make sure that I have a safety net just in case it goes south. Well, Saul had the ultimate safety net. He didn't go out at all. And David was all in, and he's the one who got results. Look at what happens in this text. The army starts out being terrified, being paralyzed, of absolutely no use to God or anyone else. And they end up seeing God at work, totally routing the enemy. Now, this isn't part of the story that the Bible records, but I think it's an important leadership lesson. And if you've ever run anything, you know the truth of this. What happens immediately after this? Well, David, who saves the armies of Israel, it's not all hail the conquering hero. The honeymoon does not last long. Pretty soon, Saul is hunting David down. David is out in the wilderness. It's all up and down. It's not all glory. But David keeps moving forward and trusting God in the midst of it. So a couple of application points. If you won't be faithful to God, he'll find someone who will. I like the old adage. I think it's so true in this in this story, but also in our lives when we're trying to do something for God. Lead, follow, or get out of the way. Saul didn't lead, he didn't follow, he was just in the way. And if we're only relying on our own gifts and management skills, we're going to encounter stuff that we can't handle that will paralyze us. A bad boss, an economic downturn, a relationship that gets complicated, kids that drive us crazy, those things will come up and we just won't have the wherewithal to handle the challenges. I think it's part of the lesson 
of the story of Saul and David. Saul keeps relying only on his own strength and comes up short. David constantly relies on God, and that's what God blesses. So we're talking about stories of origin. These help us to understand who we are and who God is and who we are in God. So what do we learn from this? We learn once again that God keeps his promises. We learn that God doesn't call us to things that we can't, with his help, handle. We learn that God works in ways that might surprise us and that God uses people that might surprise us, maybe even us. We learn that God will accomplish his purposes even if we won't help. We learn that God wants our hearts, not just our management abilities. And we learn that if we rely on God, God will use us. So let me ask you three questions. Where are you missing the God factor in your life? Number two, which are you, a Christian or a disciple? And number three, what gifts do you have that God might be able to use? <music>